Oh, man. I'm glad to see you in the room this morning or if you're joining us online. Um, I'm just eager to, I feel like I've been stirred this week. I have a word to share. Um, And if I'm looking around, I'm like, oh, there's some of you I don't know. My name's Amy, if I haven't met you. um, I'm a team pastor here at Ashworth, and I love my church. I love what God's doing here, and um, I'm so glad you're here, each of you, uh, in this room and online this morning. So we've been in um, a series we're calling The Big Picture, or kind of the big story of God. We're talking about the kind of overarching themes and narratives in uh, the story of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we talked about creation and how God created the world and all the things in it um, for good and designed it for good, and it's this beautiful, very good thing. And then humans, his very good creation, screw it all up, and uh, there's some failure, okay? And that was last week in the fall, and I was thinking about that this week, how um, we, we mess things up. Like, humans just mess things up. And I feel that especially in my life um, with kids, I see that, okay? And then Keegan, my friend Keegan right here, she showed me a video um, called Peanut Butter Baby. Anybody know this video? Um, Peanut Butter Baby? Okay, so then I got on this, I got on this whole like spiral on YouTube and then in Instagram. I follow an account on Instagram called Kids Are the Worst and I love <laughs> children and I love my kids, but it's so funny what kids do, and you see, I'm like, oh, that's the fall, that's the fall. Anyway, so I just thought, before we dive in, I'm going to give us a little lighthearted um, a humor around people being failures. <laughs> kids are the worst. Okay, so the first one is peanut butter baby. Let's see it. These are things like, okay, God, this is like us, right? God gives us this amazing thing, and we do something so terrible with it, right? Peanut butter. She thought, what? This would be amazing. Let me cover my little brother from head to toe in peanut butter. Oh, my gosh. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, this one makes me laugh. <laughs> I mean, this is like, that looks like house paint. What do you do? You got to take up all the flooring, buy a new TV, like your children. How do you get that off your children? Oh, kids are the worst. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, oh, yeah, that's a nice flat screen TV in the background. I had a friend over the other day, and she was noticing how low our TV is to the ground, and she was like, just so you know, she's like, I bought my son a toolkit, and he was fixing the TV one day, and that's what happened. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, What's the next one? Oh, (laughs) this one makes me laugh. It's so funny. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay, because look at her. She's delighted. She's absolutely delighted in what she's just done. (laughs) That poor baby, and there's like, I'm like, is that permanent marker that's all over those (laughs) eyes and her mouth? (laughs) And I just love how the older sister is literally like, look at, look, mom, like, look what I did, you know? Oh, so funny, so funny. Kids are the worst. Okay, next slide. Oh, yes, this one, I found this one on the the Instagram page. That's raw meat. That's ground beef. So all the groceries were in the you know, pile the groceries around the baby in the back of the car, you get home from the grocery store, and she has ripped open the ground beef (laughs) and scattered it around. Oh, it's too funny. Okay, okay, the last one, this might be the worst. So 
This is a true story. A few years ago, there was, a, uh, uh, this was on my, the Kids Are the Worst Instagram account. This story, a toddler whose parents were saving up. They, had, they were saving like thousands of dollars for their vacation. And they kept it in an envelope and it was in the office and they also have a paper shredder in their office. And so this toddler was learning how to use the paper shredder on his own and shredded their entire load of vacation money. <laughs> Kids are the worst. It's so funny. It's so funny and so awful, right? Oh, you guys, I had, I laughed so hard at these because why, kids just are a reminder of, of us, right? <laughs> the big picture that God gives us these beautiful, good things for our benefit and we destroy them, whether a paper shredder or covering our sibling in peanut butter. Um, oh, that was good for my soul. So big picture of God. What do we know so far? What we know so far is we know about creation, that God created everything. He created humans in his image. Um, and he created humans to rule the earth um, on his behalf. And then the fall happened. Brent talked last week about how humans, um, even in perfection, did that strike anyone else? Wow, last week I thought, even when we're given perfection, we still chose, humans still choose something they want more. Even in perfection, we wanted more. And so humans chose sin in that moment and rebellion. And now, what we know is the world is in chaos. There's uh, violence and death. And that was then, and, and that's still now in many ways. Um, there was violence happening and murder. There's Cain and Abel and the Tower of Babylon. People just, just jockeying for power, desperate for power, um, murder. I mean, isn't that crazy how in Genesis... In the first book of the Bible, it goes from just complete perfection and beauty to like just destruction in the first book. Is anyone else like me? Like when I watch a movie or I read a story, I love to like linger in that like the setup of the characters and all the perfection. It's like, oh, I know there's conflict coming, but I'm like, keep, keep putting it off. You know, I like enjoy that. Well, it doesn't last very long in the Bible. You know, chapter, or book one, we see perfection, and it does not last long. And soon we just see destruction and destruction and destruction. So what now? Well, today we're going to talk about um, how does God plan to restore and redeem. Um, and that's through a man. Well, I'm going to tell a story specifically about a man named Abraham. Or in this story, he's called Abram, but he's renamed to Abraham. And how God's plan is to restore the world through this guy and through his family. And yeah, what do we know so far? <laughs> that, I forgot I said that. What do, what's summed up so far in what we know? That, God, that humans keep failing and God keeps trying. God keeps trying and humans keep failing. It's the same story over and over. And so then we see Abraham. And we come to the story of Abraham. And there's something that God wants to do through this man. He's like, I want to... Through, through you, Abraham, and through your family, I want to redeem and restore the world. And it's going to be through something called covenant. Um, and we see that, um, this idea of covenant over and over. In fact, we sang about it this morning. You know, we talked about Moses and David. God makes covenants with these people throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to talk a little bit about what is covenant uh, before we jump into Abraham's story. So covenant just 
in its basic understanding, is a, it's a legal contract between two parties. It formally binds two parties together. Um, it, it's a relationship, but it's this mutual commitment to each other. Um, and there are consequences for breaking the covenant. And it was hard for me to think about. I'm like, what do we have today that's like covenant? There's not a lot. We don't use this word in modern language. We don't use this concept much even. Maybe the closest we have to it is, I mean, obviously we think about, sometimes we use this word when we think about marriage or weddings, like you, co- you make a covenant to one another. Um, but so often we just think about contracts, right? We think about like, oh, we have to sign something, you know, f- to get our house or, um, you know, to pay our bills or whatever. We're like, we agree to get these services and we will pay you for these services and we sign. We don't know a lot about this idea of covenant. We don't understand maybe the richness in our culture of what covenant really means. But I was uh, listening to someone this week and he was talking about how it's this beautiful kind of perfect mixture of law and love where um, it's a relationship that is more legally binding and more accountable and more committed than just a personal relationship is. Um, but it's also more intimate and more um, loving and tender than a legal relationship is. And so that's the idea of covenant. As I think about it, whenever I think about covenant, I think about just the word promise, like the idea of like, it is a promise, um, but a deep promise um, that, that we make with each other, with God, that God makes with us. And so back to Abraham's story, um, in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with him. God had told him to leave his land, the Ur of the Chaldeans, and to go to Canaan. And he agrees. Abraham says, okay. And he leaves what's most important in that kind of Near East culture. He leaves land, he leaves family, and he goes. um, And he follows God's word. He's obedient. And in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God makes a covenant with him. and And he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Well, God is making this incredible promise to Abram, and he was desperate for it. He's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. And you know what that means? That means you're going to have land, and you're going to have kids. And that's what Abram wanted all along. And so then a couple chapters later is the story that I really want to tell this morning. And this is kind of an obscure um, passage in Genesis about Abraham. But I love this story. So we find him a few chapters later, a little time later, in Genesis 15. He's obeyed God and he's now in Canaan. But it's not his yet. He doesn't possess it. Um, And he doesn't have a child yet. And he's between like 75 and 85. So it picks up in Genesis 15, verse 2 through 8. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, who would have been his assistant. And Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's like, even if you do give me land, I don't have anyone to give it to. What, my assistant gets it? And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Wow. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so God reaffirms this covenant, this commitment that he's made to Abram. And Abram says to him, God, I believe you, but how's that possible? I'm not going to have a son. I don't have, you know, I don't, if, I'm, if you're going to give me land, I don't have anyone to give it to. And he says, oh, but I am going to give you a child. I'm going to give you so many children. Takes him out, shows him all these stars and says, you can't even count, you can't even count the number of offspring that you will have. And so you can imagine just like the hope and the encouragement in Abram in that moment. Um, and then he asks this question, and I think this is a very fair question for him to ask. He says, but how will I know? How will I know that I'm going to take possession of the land and that I will have offspring? Because his experience so far is that he doesn't have that yet. God has promised this to him, and he doesn't have it yet. And the word know there, when he says, God, how can I know? The word know is a, a Hebrew word called yada, which is the... It's an idea of having an experience, not just knowing something from your head, knowing something from your mind, or someone giving you a verbal promise, but it's uh, an experience. And Abraham is asking, um, what is, God, I need, I need an experience. I need, I need to know at a, at a level of experience that this is true. Does anybody relate to that? <laughs> you ever need that from God? Like, God, thank you. I can read your word. I can believe your promises. But like, I need an experience, you know? Can you give me a sign? Can you give me something so that I know deep within my soul, not just in my head, that this is true? I relate to that. I resonate with that. And so Genesis 15, 9, 10 says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other. So the story gets a little weird. I just saw Balia's face go, what? This is kind of a strange story for us. It would not have been at this time because it was their custom when there was a very significant agreement or a very significant arrangement um, of, of a commitment or a covenant together, they would do this custom of sacrificing an animal. So they would bring an animal and they would slice this animal in half. They would arrange the halves so there was a path between them. And then they would let the, I was gonna put up pictures, but I didn't, didn't do that to you guys. Then they, put, then they would let the blood run down. And the blood would run down. And then in the custom um, at this time, the two people who were making the agreement, who were making this commitment to each other would walk through the blood together. And the reason they would do that, it was like, it was saying to each other, they didn't have whatever e-document sig electronic signatures like we do today, like I'm, I'm signing on the dotted line, you know? They didn't have paper to write. They had animals and they had blood. And so they were agreeing in blood. And what that meant as they walked through those animal carcasses together and walked through that blood together, it meant if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't hold up my end of the commitment, then my blood should be shed. Then my blood will be shed. Like my life, I'm putting my life on the line. I will look like this animal if I don't hold up my end of the promise or the commitment. And then the story continues. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. 
and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Oh my goodness, I was like, good thing he's sleeping for this. Like, God has just given him this hopeful promise, like, you will have children, and you will have a land, and now he's telling them, like, but for 400 years, um, they will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved. And then he says, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they'll come out with great possessions. So there is hope. It's just a long way out. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, it gets weirder, the story gets weirder, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to give, your people will have a whole bunch of land. And I am promising you that. It's funny. Abram asked for an experience. Like, he said, I want to know. I want to know. I need an experience to know. I mean, this experience would be memorable, right? This weird, strange experience of, of the, the animal carcasses and the blood that's running down. And then Abram falls into this deep sleep. And as I was researching it a little bit, people were, different commentators were just, all had the same idea of it. It's just kind of this, like, being overwhelmed with the supernatural experience that's with you. I don't have any, um, you know, charismatics in the room. woo We know what that's like, right? That feeling of like, oh, I'm so overcome, overwhelmed by the supernatural work that's around me that I'm like, I'm out, you know, I'm asleep. Um, or there's this kind of divine sleep or like this moment of divine revelation. And so Abram's over here laying on the ground just sleeping in this moment. And I imagine that he's in the moment, he's seeing things, but he's also kind of passed out in this divine sleep. And then we see the animal carcasses, this blood is running down, and now we see a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. It's kind of odd, right? And those are the things that are traveling through that blood. Well, those things really are just symbols of smoke and fire. Where else have we seen smoke and fire? Where else do we see smoke and fire in the Old Testament? Representing God, right? God led the Israelites fire by night, pillar of smoke by day, right? Is there any other examples? Moses and the burning bush, more fire. The bush was not consumed, but there was fire. So I, essentially what's happening here is this is a, a physical manifestation of God, a physical manifestation of God in this moment. And God is traveling through that blood between the carcasses. He's taking that covenant in that moment, right? And it's odd because it's this torch and this smoking fire pot, but it's the fire and the smoke. It is some kind of tangible manifestation of God's presence in this moment that is walking through those animal carcasses. And where was Abraham? Where was Abraham in this whole thing? Sleeping. He was sleeping. Exactly. Okay. My mind was blown when I started to really understand this story this week. He was sleeping. What is a covenant? What is essential for a covenant? 
And essential for a covenant is two parties to say, we will be committed to one another. And if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, then the blood's on me. And if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then blood's on you, right? So Abraham and God were about to make this covenant. And what does he do? He puts Abraham in this beautiful, deep, divine sleep, right? And God does it himself. Do you get that? Do you understand what's happening here? God's covenant is with himself. It's not on Abraham. I mean, there's just this beautiful moment. They're about to sign this covenant promise to each other. God's saying, I'm signing for both of us. And he walks through for both of them. What? I mean, I had so many moments this week where I was just like, God, you're so good. He takes on both sides of this covenant. This becomes a unilateral covenant. God is holding up to God's word against God, for God, you know, on behalf of Abraham and his family. When, when God himself walks through that blood in the form of smoke and fire, he's saying, if I don't hold up my end of the promise as God, it's on me. I will shed my blood. And he's saying, Abraham, if you don't hold up your end of the promise, it's on me. I will shed my blood. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I was just floored. And who do we see in that picture? Jesus. And so as I learned and have been learning even more and more about covenant this week, I realized that in the kingdom of God, covenant is different than what we expect. Covenant is not contingent on your faithfulness. Covenant is not contingent on human faithfulness. Covenant is contingent on God's faithfulness. Isn't that just an incredible relief? So beautiful. And I was asking God, oh God, I need a picture. I need an image like, you know, beyond the carcasses. I need something in my own life. Um, That reminds me of the power of, of covenant. And Matthew and I were talking this week and we were remembering, we were having this memory of something that happened to us years ago. So a number of years ago, Matthew and I were um, up late one night. We didn't have kids. We stayed up late. We just stayed awake and just hung out. I mean, what an amazing thing you could do. And we, you used to be able to get ice cream cones at McDonald's for 99 cents, and they're delicious. So we, when the ice cream machine's working, and Matthew and I would go to McDonald's, um, and this night we went, and we lived, oh, we lived um, a little east, northeast, and so we went to the 6th Avenue McDonald's. There's always something going on there. 6th Avenue and University. And we went to get ice cream cones. It was about midnight. And that place was hopping. And um, we walked in. And as we were walking in, I saw a car load of elderly folks. So there was maybe three people in the car. And they just struck me. And I do this all the time. Matthew's always like, don't engage. Don't engage. You know, like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I see them. I notice something. And we just go in. We get our ice cream cones. We're about to leave. And as we're walking out, I just notice them again. And I look at them. And I'm like, I have to engage. So I can see they're looking in my eyes. So I walk over to the car. And I'm like, are you okay? It's midnight. And these are like probably folks in their 80s um, sitting in a car at midnight on 6th Avenue McDonald's. And they were like, no, we're not okay. We, and they begin to explain the situation. They're like, we're from Madrid. It was a Saturday. They're like, we went for a Saturday morning drive around Madrid and outside Madrid. 
And somehow we ended up in Des Moines. We got lost. And now here we are, and we can't find our way home. We've been driving around all day trying to find our way back. And we can't find our way home. I'm like, oh my goodness. And you can see it. I'm like, no wonder you look terrible. Like, you're exhausted, you're scared, you're weary. They're just eating their french fries, you know, and I'm like, gonna cry. And I'm thinking, okay, we need to help. So I said, do you, want, do you want us to give you directions to Madrid? And they said, yes, please, we don't have phones. They're like, one of our friends, she's diabetic and she hasn't had insulin all day. Okay, so I said, well, let me give you some directions. So pull up my GPS and I'm explaining to them, you're gonna take this, you're gonna take this, this is the exit you want. Right here, left here, and they're all just like, <laughs> just staring, and Matthew and I are like, this isn't gonna work. So. We say, okay, well, here, hang on, let me, get my, let me get some paper and a pen and I'm gonna write down directions for you. So we write them down, I give them to them and they're like, still just staring, have no, I mean, they're so tired, so weary. They've been trying all day, you know, to get to their destination and they keep failing. And this, these directions mean absolutely nothing to them. So I was like, okay, next plan. Plan C, like, babe, why don't we get in the car and we're gonna drive them to their exit. We'll get them going on the right direction, get them on the right path. So I said, just follow me, follow us, we'll get you to like the exit and then you're gonna turn off here and that'll, you'll recognize where you are and you'll go into Madrid. So they said, okay, that sounds good. So they start following us and it, within like just a couple minutes we realized that they can't even do that. Like, they're just tired and weary, and they're just so done. They can't even follow us. I mean, they're so slow. They're veering off the road. They couldn't get on the interstate. They couldn't merge onto the interstate. And so then Matthew and I lose them, and we have to go hunting for them, and we find them on, on the side of the road. And so we stop and get out, and, and both of us knew. We stopped and saw their car on the side of the road, and Matthew and I looked at each other, and we both knew. And I said, you have to drive them. And he's like, I know. And so we go to their car and I tell the guy who's driving, I explain the situation, thinking I'm gonna have to convince him to let some strangers that he met at the 6th Avenue McDonald's get in his car and drive them home. And he was like, great, thank you. I mean, not, he, didn't, he didn't even think twice about it. And he was, he'd been in his car so long that we had to like heave him out. I mean, he didn't even have the... He was so tight and weary, and I mean, we literally pulled him out of his car, we put him in the back seat, Matthew got in the, in the driver's seat and drove him home, and I followed. We got there, it was sweet, they got home, everything was fine, they made it home. But I've remembered that moment since, and when Matthew and I drove home, we were processing that experience, and both of us had, were like, wow, this feels like God. Not that Matthew was God or we were God in this situation, Lord have mercy. But isn't that what God does with us? And that's what covenant is. We try and try and try. What, if you go back and read, fill in in Genesis, all the places where people continue to fail, and then it just keeps continuing. This is the whole theme of scripture until we start to get to the New Testament. And there's still a bunch of failure there too. Humans continue to fail, like we try to get to our destination. We try and try and try, but we're lost. We cannot make it. We don't have the means, right? And I love that God is not a God, and he is a covenant God, and he's not saying, 
Abram, I'll give you directions of how to get land and how to get a family, and then you can figure it out. He's not saying, Abram, I'll drive my own vehicle and you can watch me. You know, I'll lead you and you can just watch me and you can figure out how to get land and people. He's like, no, Abram, move over and rest. Literally puts him in a divine sleep. You rest. You cannot get yourself to where you need to go. It's on me. This covenant is on me. My blood will be shed. If, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, which you will not, and we already know, the blood is on me. Isn't that incredible relief? I felt so much relief reading this this week. Just the idea even that in this culture, sacrificing for God was such a part of life, sacrificing to appease God or sacrificing to get favor or attention or to repay God was such a part of what you did when you failed and when you needed something and when you wanted the attention of God. And God is communicating here that he is unlike any God that they've known before. Right? Whereas, where people have sacrificed for their gods, he is a God who will sacrifice for them, for you, for Abraham. And all of this is foreshadowing for a new covenant. And who is the new covenant? Jesus. I was in a book study with some Women, there's this awesome, st- you can still jump in if you want. There's a book study happening Wednesday mornings and Wednesday nights. And the thing we were talking about um, this week was our image of God and where we have distorted image of God. And one of the things that we were talking about that was, that was similar among all of us, among different generations, um, different backgrounds, Catholics, Evangelicals, Protestants, I mean, it didn't matter. We all had a similar sense of when we think about God, we think of him as distant. We think of him as a little confusing, maybe a little bit scary. There's some fear there or like he feels more like a parent and like, ooh, we, we want to appease him. And with Jesus, we feel more sense of like, oh, Jesus is fully, was also fully human. He's compassionate. He's loving. Jesus died for us. And there's this weird kind of discrepancy that's actually not true. And we see it in covenant, actually. Covenant is where we see God's intense love for us. It's not like, oh, we have the angry God of the Old Testament, and then when Jesus comes, suddenly Jesus is loving and wonderful and compassionate and sacrificial. No, we see through covenant that we have a God who loves us fiercely enough to say, no, 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 no. I'm, this covenant, you're not gonna walk through because you're gonna fail and I know. So this covenant's gonna be on me. It's all on me. And the blood that will be spilled when you don't hold up your end of the promise is mine. And that happens in the new covenant in Jesus. And I would love to talk about that, but I won't. I'll leave Jesus for the weeks to come. In Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, it says, Jesus is having his his last meal with his disciples and he says after the supper he took the cup and he said this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you now doesn't that remind you of that carcass and the blood running down and God walking through as a torch as a fire and a, and a cloud of smoke and he's saying it's on me I am so committed to you I have such a promise for you, and you don't have to hold up your end of the bargain. It's on me. 
So the opening story of this big picture of God, we see in these initial pages, this beautiful, wonderful, powerful God who gives everything for us and he creates us and he's in all things and he gives form and order and and then he makes the pinnacle of his creation, which is us, which is humans and he calls us very good and he makes us in our image and he makes us because he wants to share existence with us, he wants partnership. That's covenant. He wants partnership with us. He wants partnership with humans. And he wants us to contribute to the good world that he's made and to bring his kingdom on earth. But Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says that the rest of the Bible is about the fractured partnership. The theme, again, of humans keep failing God and God keeps being faithful. The whole plot line of the Bible is God embodied as the one faithful human covenant partner that we were all made to be but failed to be. The whole plot line of the Bible is God embodied as the one faithful human covenant partner that we were all made to be but failed to be. And through Jesus, through a new covenant, we get restored partnership and restored relationship with God, with our creator. So covenant is essential to our story. And what does it mean for us today? One of the things that we're learning about as we're studying the big picture of God is we're learning about what, what is the bigger story that God's telling us. And not everything in the Bible is prescriptive, right? But we know in this moment that we are a covenant people and that we serve a covenant God who promises, whose promises are true and faithful And so what does that mean for us today? It means that we don't have to live in our own insecurity. We don't have to be our own covenant representative because I tried to do that and it doesn't work. We will always fail. Good news, it doesn't matter. When you fail, when you are not faithful, when you don't hold up your end of the promise, God does. He is faithful, he does not fail, and he keeps his promises. If you keep reading, you will learn, and you know if you know Abraham's story, he had to wait a long time, and there's a lot of things that he didn't even get to see, but the promises remain true. And so we trust in that, that God's covenant with us, his promises for us are true. And if the promise is broken, it's on him. And if the promise is broken on our end, it's on him. Through Jesus, he sheds his blood. Covenant creates, for me, thinking about this this week, I kept thinking covenant creates this security, this safety, this rest, right? It's like those old folks in this car. You don't have to drive. You cannot get yourself home. You know, you've tried and tried and tried and tried, and you're weary and exhausted. Do you ever have that in your life? You're like, oh, I just cannot get there. And God is saying, it's okay. You don't have to drive. Move over. I'm going to drive. And there's this safety and the security and this rest. I love in that same passage is where he says that Abraham believed him and he credited it to his righteousness. It wasn't Abraham did what he asked. Abraham was obedient. Abraham was faithful to his portion of the covenant. No, Abraham believed that God would do what God said he would do. And God called that righteousness. God said that makes him in right standing with me. God is inviting us to rest. And that divine sleep, to rest 
and to know that his promises are true.